Good morning again, everyone. One of the things I've noticed about your church is that you read Scripture so beautifully. You take it very, very serious. And so thank you for that reading. It's quite a reading. Uh, we, my wife, Phyllis, and I have really enjoyed being in your wonderful and beautiful city this week. We've done all sorts of things. Uh, you have more great restaurants per capita, I think, than any place in the world. And so we haven't even begun to exhaust them, but we tried. Uh, one of my favorite places that we went throughout the week was this place called Handlebar Coffee. Do you know this place? It's a wonderful spot. And I went there often enough to get to meet this dog that's there all the time. It's this little black and brown miniature terrier chihuahua-like dog. Do you know this dog? He only has one eye. And he walks around Handlebar Coffee as if he owns the place and just sits down in the middle of the coffee shop expecting everyone to move around him as if you're walking towards this dog and he's staring at you with one eye saying, you are going to have to go around me. He does this on the sidewalk outside in the alleyway outside as well, impeding and obstructing anyone's path who might dare to try to walk through him. And as I watched this dog and as I studied for this passage, I thought this passage is oftentimes like this dog. The scriptures are oftentimes like this one-eyed dog. Jesus, in fact, for those who would follow after him, are often like this one-eyed dog staring at us, asking us, are you really going to try and follow me and go this way? In fact, you're not. You're not going to go this way. You're going to go another way. This passage is especially true in that regard. Here, in that which was just read for you, at the end of Acts chapter 4, we have a second smaller Pentecost. Very, very similar to what happened at the very beginning of the book of Acts back in chapter 2. Here we find the physical place where the Christians are gathered, much like this place, shaken. But not simply the place being shaken, but also the people there. They're each filled with the Holy Spirit. They themselves are shaken. And then as a result, like we talked about last week, they speak. They speak words that are true about Jesus. And the question that I want for us to ask ourselves this morning is how are we to know if, if what has happened or what happened with them continues to happen with us? I'm not expecting the, sh- the place in which we're gathered this morning to be shaken. But how are we to know that we, this church, Christ Pres here in Santa Barbara, if you are a part of and a continuation of that which we read of here? How can we have the confidence to say what we say by just showing up here week after week, that we indeed are a part of the church, a continuation of this community that we read of here. And to answer that question, I want to point out two main things to you from this text. The first of which is that there is a claim that's being made here. In verse 32 and in verse 34, there is a double description, a twofold description of all of the Christians, not just the apostles, but all of the Christians. And Together, this description, along with the other details of this text, it makes a claim about who these Christians are, in fact, of what they are. In verse 32, we read, now the full number of those who believed. So, meaning all 8,000. I told you last week that at Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people believed. At Peter's second sermon, 5,000 people believed. At his third sermon, just before the Jewish leaders, none believed. And and last week we asked, now, why was that the case? But 8,000 people believed, and that's all of them here. All of these who have believed, all 8,000, we read, were of one heart and one soul. That's the first part of the double description, one heart. And then it goes on to say, and no one said that any of the things that they had belonged to them alone. Skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. 
And that's the twofold description. One heart, not a needy person among them. Now, before we go on, I think reading this description begs the question of us. What is the description that those outside, especially looking in and seeing us and knowing who we are, who you are as a church, what would their description of you be? What would be the twofold, the double description of you be? Of us? Would it be anything along these lines? One heart and no needy person. Each of these descriptors, their descriptors, they're very intentionally chosen by Luke here. In fact, their references back to the Old Testament. The first of which was the one that was read for you previously from Jeremiah chapter 32. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God would show up and would speak to his people. He would speak to his, he would speak to his people through the prophets. And he would say things effectively like, listen, I know the situation in which you live. Very similar to how Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation at the very beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, where he says, I know where you live. Similarly, throughout the Old Testament, God would show up and he would say, I know the situation in which you find yourself. I know it's a result of your own doing, but also the wrongdoing of others. I know you need rescue. I know this entire world needs to be rescued and needs to be changed. They need to be changed at every level. Socially, economically, economically, politically, relationally, every aspect and sphere of this world needs to be changed. You need to be rescued and I will do it. I promise you, I will do it. I will show up. I will rescue you. I will change the world. And when I do, this is what you, my people, will look like. This is what you'll look like. And then he goes on to say things like he says in Jeremiah 32. And though we've already read it, I want to reread it to you for just a second. Because here... We have a description of what the people of God would be like when he showed up and climactically and definitively did something for them. I will give them one heart. Do you hear the echo? I will give them one heart and one way, and they will fear me forever for their own good and their own, the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Back up in verse 38, and they shall be my God, my people, and I will be their God. This passage, as Kyle mentioned at the confession of sin, it, it comes to a people, as he said, when they had no hope. In fact, um, this was a time when after multiple generations of Israel being unfaithful to God and rejecting God, that God had divorced his people. That's one, of, that's one of the ways that we can describe what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. We could even go so far as to say that he divorced his people. And it's a powerful image. It was a powerful image then, but it's a powerful image for us now today because so many of us know the pain and the chaos and the loss, the indelible mark that the reality of divorce leaves upon us. The Old Testament scriptures use this image because they compare the relationship of Israel to God as the relationship of a bride to a husband and their sin and unfaithfulness to God as being like adultery, spiritual adultery. And, and the scriptures tell us the story of after generation after generation of God chasing after Israel even when she chased after her other lovers, other things that she would set her heart upon, orient her life around and worship. Finally, God gave Israel his people over to that which they craved. He finally 
After doing all that he could do, he gave her over and he lifted off his husband-like protection from her. And the result is that foreign armies invaded and wiped out everybody. Murdered, slaughtered men, women, and children, and those whom they didn't kill, they carried off into slavery. And this passage comes at that time. After the slaughter. After the slavery. After the divorce. So think about those words in that context. Because these words are a promise of God to take Israel back. Like taking back a, a, a lost and adulterous bride. And bringing her back, not simply to the land, but ultimately to himself. Promising, in a sense, to remarry her. The actual language that's used is that of a covenant. Of establishing a new covenant. A covenant is a, is a relational bond that's so all-encompassing that those who enter into it, they share one life. Marriage is a covenant. And God promised that this time things would be different. In this new covenant, this renewed relationship, it would be different. It would be everlasting. And it's not because God would be any different. It's not because he would do anything differently. It's because they themselves would be different. That Israel wouldn't run away. Wouldn't run after all of these other lovers. All of these other things that she might set her heart upon. Because she would have a new heart. She would have one collective new heart. And friends, that is what Luke is claiming here. By, by using that very brief First part of that twofold description saying they had one heart. He's making a claim saying, look at, look at the Christians. Everything that God promised to do when he would renew his people, it's happening. It's happening here among the Christians. Just look at them. They've got new hearts. They've got a new heart. They agree with one another. By and large, they, they agree with one another. They're not riddled with jealousy and envy. They, they actually love one another. They're not beset with strife and with anger and with divisions. They're not beset with some sort of passive, passive, aggressive attempt to undermine the relationships that exist there. Their sexual lives are different. They, they actually have some level of real, true self-control and self-denial. They're people of grace. They're people of forgiveness. They don't live towards people doing to them as those people had done to them, but as they would have them be done to. They don't repay evil for evil, but they forgive. In other words, they look like what we would imagine people who know God actually live like. Just, he's saying, just look at them. They have new hearts, but also, that's just the first part. Second part of the description, there's also not a needy person among them. Uh, that's also an Old Testament reference. In fact, it's almost a direct Old Testament quote because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, we read God saying to Israel, there shall be no poor among you. It, it, it's more of a command than what we find here. More of a command than a descriptor, a description. There will be no poor among you. And then chapter 15 goes on to explain how Israel was supposed to care for and meet the needs of the poor. Which, by the way, if you read all of Jeremiah, if you read other prophets like Ezekiel, Amos, others, you'll realize that was the, one of the primary sins that Israel committed against God. They didn't take care of the poor. They sinned against God by sinning against the poor. One of their greatest sins was economic. And so we could say that God finally gave them up as much for their love of money and their lack of love for the poor as anything else. So again, Luke is saying, look, one heart. Look, not a needy person among them. 
what they say about Jesus must be true. They say that he's the God of Israel in the flesh. They say that he's the Messiah. They say that he's not dead. They say that he died, but he was raised again. They say that they know him. They say that he dwells in their midst. It must be true because there's not a needy person among them. That is the claim. They're changed, which is the second thing I want to point out. In addition to a claim being made here, there is a change that has taken place. And the change that has taken place is a change of grip, a change of these people's grip. Very simply, their grip on possessions and wealth has loosened and their grip on people has tightened. Think about that twofold description. One heart. They have one heart. Their, Their grip on people has tightened. But no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So their, their grip on the possessions and the things of this world has loosened. So much so that in verse 34, we read about those who had possessions, who had land and houses, they sold them. Men like Barnabas, others. They sold them and they gave all of the proceeds over to the apostles in order that they might distribute it to those who have need. That they might not exploit the poor that they might not ignore the poor, but they might actually care for and meet the needs and even protect those poor among them. Which is why just a couple of weeks in my home state of Texas, the Catholic Church Diocese of Fort Worth, they petitioned the city of Fort Worth that they begin to regulate payday lending. Fort Worth is the only major city in Texas that does not regulate payday lending. And the Catholic Charities and the bishop there in the city of Fort Worth, they saw a pattern, especially with immigrants who in Texas, very similar to here in California, are just flooding into our country. And they're new to our country and they don't understand the culture of loans that our country has had and is familiar with for generations. And they noticed that these people were susceptible to being targeted by these advertising campaigns with these, these, these payday loans that would balloon up after a short period of time, and sink these people into crippling debt that they could never get out of. And they were, they're completely unregulated in the city of Fort Worth. And so the bishop and the, and the diocese of Fort Worth went to the city and said, this has to stop. This, this has to stop. We actually have to protect the poor and the sojourners among us. And why? Because they're Christians and their grip has changed. The point is, the point of this is that believing in Jesus, if it does anything, it changes your grip. And you hold on far more tightly to people, to those who are made in the image of God, than the things of this world. That sounds fine and good, but our problem, our problem is Ananias' problem. And we know this problem. Uh, Chapter 4 Sadly, but not surprisingly, it transitions into chapter 5. And here we find Ananias and the problem of the power of sin, which is not just his problem, but our problem as well. And the power of sin within us all, it's this voice. It's this voice that cries out and cries out through us saying, mine. That's essentially what the power of sin leads us all to say. It's what it leads Ananias here to say, mine. That this right here, whatever it may be, this, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's anything else, this right here, it is mine. It's mine only. It belongs to me. And it's not for anyone else to use, to enjoy, or to have a share. And it is mine and mine only. And friends, that is what the power of sin does to us. 
it, it does it to our wealth, but it does it to so much more than just our wealth. We say this of our time. We say this of our talents. We say this of our bodies. How, how common in our individualistic, increasingly secular post-Christian society do you hear people speak about their bodies as their own? That, that my body is my own and no one has the right to tell me to, what to do with my body whatsoever. That it's mine. Therefore, my sexual life is mine. My speech, it is mine. And, and nobody has, has any right to tell me how to use it otherwise. This, this is the voice of the power of sin. And, and sin is a power. As I told you last week, it's not simply something we do much, much more, even more essentially. It is something that does us. And it bends us in on ourselves. And it makes us self-obsessive to the point of self-worshipping so that not only do we say that all of this that belongs to me is not is mine and nobody has any right to take it from me, but also everything that belongs to all of you, that's for me too. And we become spiritual black holes. Spiritual, emotional, financial black holes just sucking everything of everyone else's in on ourselves, taking always, consuming always, demanding always, never giving, never sacrificing, and therefore never loving. And so the question for us this morning, the question for you, for each of us, is there anything right now that, that any of us are saying, and there is, I mean, let's be honest, there is, that we're saying to God or to others, that right there, that part of my life, that thing, that is mine and mine only. It is my money, it is my stuff, or it's, it's my job, it's my career, it's my city, it's my friends, or it's, it's my drinking, my body, or it's my past, and it's my hurt, and it's my shame, and it's my regret. And it's my guilt and no one is going to take that from me. No one is going to know anything about it and no one is going to take that from me. Friends, that is the voice of the power of sin within us. And that is the voice in us that Jesus came to silence. And he can silence it. And here's, here's why and here's how he silences the voice of the power of sin. And that is when he came to earth, Jesus never said that any of the things that belonged to him were his alone. He, he shared everything that is his. Jesus, as God, the son, he came to earth from heaven. He came as God in the flesh, as owner and king of all things and as possessor of an infinitely satisfying and eternally perfect relationship with God, the father, a relationship so all encompassing, so complete so infinite that it's actually a person, that it's the person of the Holy Spirit, that the bond of covenant love between the Father and the Son is so real that it's the Spirit. And he came with all of that as King of heaven, as possessor of the Father and the Son, and he gave it all up. He gave it all up by dying on the cross in order that he might take all of that which I just mentioned of ours, take it off of us, take it from us. And if that wasn't enough, not simply to take all of that off of us, but to give to us everything that he alone possesses, to share everything with us. His, his relationship with the Father, 
his relationship with the spirit, his acceptance in heaven, his ownership of the earth. In other words, we have everything in common with Jesus. For those who believe in and have been baptized in his name, you have everything in common with Jesus. Read the New Testament. Read the Apostle Paul. Every time that he speaks about being heirs of God and heirs with Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about. In Romans 8, in Ephesians chapter 1, he's saying you have everything in common with Jesus. And if that's true, if that's true, if that indeed is the gospel, the good news of the gospel... If that's true, then you can lay everything at his feet because he has already laid everything at yours. That's what Barnabas does here. He lays everything at the feet, not simply at the apostles' feet, but at Jesus' feet because Jesus has already laid everything at his. And in Barnabas, we see who Jesus is. We see a picture of Jesus, but we also see a picture of ourselves when the promises of God come to be fulfilled for us and to us in Jesus. We see a man living by faith because of the great grace that is upon him. And so back to my original question, the question with which we end. And that is, can we claim? Can we in proper confidence claim to be a continuation of this community? Dare we use the name church? The answer is yes. Yes. But only if we're living by faith because of the great grace that is upon us in Christ, even as Barnabas and so many others do. So lay your life down at Jesus' feet. Lay, lay, lay your entire life at Jesus' feet. Begin with your money, yes, but don't stop with your money. Because if you do, you get Jesus back. Now, what we do in worship is we come in this place and we lay ourselves down week after week. In fact, here in a moment, we're going to take up an offering. Uh, and, and we're not just taking up money. That money represents all of that which our lives have produced. And it's not just the offerings. It's also the bread and the wine here that we bring. They represent all of that which our lives have produced. We don't bring wheat and grapes. We bring bread and wine. We bring all of that which our lives have produced. We offer it to God. We give thanks to him for all of that which he has done in our lives. He receives it in his grace because of Christ. And what does he give us back? We offer him bread and wine. And what does he give us back? He gives us back Jesus. He gives us back the body and the blood of his son so that we might spiritually feed and nourish our souls on him. And live and actually begin to live. So lay everything down at his feet. Lay everything down and receive Jesus by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning. We do give you thanks for that which you have done and continue to do in and through your son and by your spirit. We pray that it would not stop with the reading and the preaching of the word, but that it would continue ultimately into this time of communion with one another. We pray for Paul, we pray for Lizzie, even as Kyle and this church sends them out to be the body of Christ in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.